It's a little odd to be talking about mustard greens in the middle of summer if you're from a warmer climate. They're hardly eaten until January in places where the ground doesn't freeze. In Alaska, though, we pretty much only have summer crops, so August will have to do. My name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. There are three important mustard plants, and they're all members of the famous family Brassicaceae. The first is white mustard, Sinopis alba. These produce the familiar yellow mustard seed that's the main ingredient in the most consumed condiment in the world, beloved all over the world, for its characteristic burn. Then there's Brassica nigra, which produces black mustard seeds. They're spicier and are often an ingredient in whole grain mustards for both their heat and their attractive contrast to the yellow seeds. And then there's Brassica juncea, the kind we're concerned with today. They have seeds, of course delicious seeds, that are the only thing to use in a proper Dijon, and they're sometimes called brown mustard after the color of those seeds, but Brassica juncea is really all about the leaves. In the U.S., the only commonly grown mustard green is variously known as curled leaf mustard, southern mustard, Texas mustard, and a whole host of other regional names. It's beloved by many African Americans who likely introduced it to this side of the Atlantic and rural southern whites, and it's hardly eaten at all outside of those communities. Mustard is a cold-weather crop and does very well in the south during the winter, providing a tasty green vegetable in a time when nothing else will grow. It's joined in the greens pot by collard and turnip greens, and it's not hard to start an argument about which is the best green. And there's only one way that all these greens are cooked. Boiled for a long time, with plenty of water, onions, and salted or smoked pork. Hot sauce at the table, serve it with cornbread. Somehow, boiling these greens for a long time doesn't call forth the horrible sulfurous stench that subjecting cabbage to the same treatment generates. They just become tender and delicious. And for Americans who like mustard greens, for the overwhelming majority of us, this is how we know them. Across Asia, it's a very different story. While we grow one variety of Brassica juncea, they grow many. There are four major subspecies, each with a wide range of cultivars within them. Some are grown primarily for their seeds, which provide an oil that is one of the approved varieties of canola oil. Some are grown for their roots and used similar to horseradish, horseradish being another member of the Brassicaceae. Some are grown for their stems and are especially beloved in pickles. And the fourth subspecies is grown mainly for its leaves. Southern curled mustard is just one of these plants. There are plants in various shades of red, green, and purple. Some have frilly leaves, some sawtooth, some flat. They vary in spice levels and where on the palate the spice hits and how fast. Some form a small head like a cabbage. They've all got their purposes too. Some are for steaming, some are for stir-frying, 
Some are for eating raw, and some are for pickling. What they all are is delicious and easy to grow. The mustard plant is a bit like a pig. All the parts are useful. The leaves can be used in a bunch of different ways. The seeds, obviously, make mustard. The flowers are pretty, yellow, beloved by bees, and unlike a lot of edible flowers, have a very nice flavor. It's often grown as a cover crop or a green manure by farmers because it's so fast-growing and pulls plenty of nutrients up from subsoils. If it sounds like I'm pushing mustard greens on you, it's because I am. And I'm going to be doing it for the next hour. So if you're already convinced, you don't need to listen anymore. Although, if you turn the show off now, you won't get to hear my first experience with Chinese pickled mustard greens in the classic dish, Dan Dan Noodles. They really are the ideal green for cold weather climates with short summers and poor soils. In fact, it is believed that the mustard green was first domesticated in the Himalayas, probably in Nepal. Nepal today still grows vast quantities of mustard, the second most in the world, in fact. Behind, only Canada. I was going to include mustard seeds in this episode, too, originally. I thought we'd talk about the whole plant, maybe make a few different kinds of mustard. Incidentally, I have yet to make a mustard I'm really happy with, or one that I think is better than the good commercial mustards out there, although I'm starting to get close. I thought there was no way I could just talk about mustard greens, because what can you do with them besides boil them for hours with some smoked sausage or bacon and serve them with cornbread? A lot, I've since discovered. And so let's get on with it. The mustard seeds are going to have to wait. Mustard the condiment feels more like fall to me anyway. standing here looking at some beautiful yellow mustard flowers. I planted mustard and this entire episode is explicitly going to be basically nothing but a work of advocacy for everybody to plant mustard because I am super enthusiastic about how all of it came out in every way. We're going to be talking about not just cooking the greens themselves, which, you know, I mean, I'm from, I'm from Louisiana. I hated mustard greens when I was a kid. I didn't come around on them until I was probably 18. I started eating them, and I loved them. In the South, the way you cook them is you boil them for a long time, generally with, like, some salt pork or something like that. And it, they're honestly, they're really delicious. And then you serve the pot liquor over cornbread, and it's all, it's awesome. But it's pretty unappealing looking, you know, especially if you're a kid, especially if you're a kid who's a little picky like I was. I definitely was much more into eating processed crap than I was. <laughs> you know, if I saw, if there was a new, if there was a commercial for like a new flavor of combos or something, I was all about that, but I would like not want to eat any, I, w I didn't want anything to do with greens. But anyway, I got into them when, much later and I loved them. In my experience, like that was the only thing that was ever really done with mustard greens or really any other kind of green. That was how they were cooked. And believe me, it's delicious. I love it. I have some collard greens that are almost ready and I can do that to them fairly soon. But I had never really grown them in the garden because it's a lot of real estate 
for something that, you know, I might only eat a few times, you know, it'd be one thing if we lived somewhere where it wasn't frozen half the year and you can just, then they're the only thing that grow and you can constantly keep them going. But in a, in a place like Alaska where I've got limited space, the soil's not great. So you got to kind of intensively work the, the garden in order to get things to grow reliably. And got what, four months can actually grow stuff outside. So it, they were always really low on the priority list for me. And then I'm not really sure what changed this year. I kind of, I've started over the last couple of years sort of learning some things about particularly Chinese cooking, and they use a lot of mustard greens. There are a ton of different varieties of Asian mustard greens. And I really, I didn't know anything about them, you know. And this winter I was kind of thinking about what I was going to put in the garden, and I was like, well, I was going to get a bunch of cabbage and make sauerkraut. And I like sauerkraut, don't get me wrong, I do. But I don't love it. I really, I like it, but I don't really want to eat it necessarily with everything. And I, I was going through and I saw all these different Asian mustard greens in the seed catalog I was looking at and I was like, well, maybe, uh, maybe I'll try some mustard greens. They all, you know, it's a cold weather plant. They say, oh, they're pretty easy to grow. A lot of, you know, you can stir fry them at any, because the one thing about, about you know, the, the southern mustard greens that I was kind of used to is that you didn't do much with them until they got sort of mature. You know, you might put them in a salad mix or something when they were real small, but and then once they bolted, then they're kind of useless for anything else. So I was like, well, I'll devote a bed to these things and see what happens. And I am totally in love with them now. I'm standing here in front of, there's probably, I still got a lot of plants. I planted them really thickly and I'm actually on my second crop um, already. And it's only July or the end of July now. It's almost August. I've been harvesting them regularly. I, I started a few inside. So when I transplanted outside, I had some, I think they were the red giants that were almost ready to go. So they, they didn't take too long, but I've been basically harvesting these things since mid to late June. I've already made probably three or four small batches of pickled mustard greens. And these are, the, the pickled mustard greens are really what I am, that's what has converted me on these things. Like they're unbelievable. They're so good. They're much more intensely flavored than, than cabbage. They have a mustardy, bitter kind of bite, but it's mellowed from the, you know, the lacto-fermentation. They're stunning. Like, I'm just completely head over heels. I, I put them in everything now, like tacos, fried rice. I mean, basically any, almost any time that I'm making, I, I like them at breakfast. They're great with eggs. Just about, I haven't really found much that they don't go with. And they don't have that, like, that real distinct cabbage -y kind of thing that sauerkraut has going on they are distinctly mustardy and and they're they're just really really terrific so we're going to talk about mustard greens today i'm in my garden i'm looking at them they need to be harvested pretty hard unfortunately i've used all my seeds i wasn't really smart enough because i didn't know how this was going to go i didn't really get enough seeds to plant another crop i'm going to see if i can track some down somewhere in town and get a few more going but i have got almost all of them have, have gone to flower right now I don't think it's it's gonna matter because you know they've still got a lot of uh mm, oh yeah so spicy you know there's still a lot of leaves at the base Ooh, ooh, those are good oh these are the seeds oh, oh yeah okay so this being sort of you know like i said the first time i've grown them i've never examined plant before and uh here are the seed pods the seed pods all hang off of the uh main part of the stem underneath the flowers and there's immature seeds just to do it just because I have so many of them and I don't really have a second crop uh, some of these I'm going to grow 
all the way out for seeds. Oh man, the seed pods, these immature seed pods are like so intensely must mustard flavored. They're delicious. So what I'm gonna do, the stems themselves are fairly woody, but the, the seed pods are, they're almost like, they almost look like a little teeny tiny bean pod. Just barely see the little immature seeds inside. Oh, there's a bite to that. Man, that's good. Um, also, one thing I have noticed that uh, you may hear the little buzz buzz. The bees are going nuts over these things. Like there are so many bees in here. They're just everywhere. Every time I come out here, there's like 10 or 15 bees hanging out. Given the importance of bees, anything we can do to encourage bees is a good thing. Eat a handful of these mustard pods. I'm gonna ferment the leaves, I'm gonna pickle the leaves, and I'm going to strip the pods and I'm gonna pickle those too. It's not often that I tell you to do something, but I'm telling you, get a bunch of different varieties of mustard. So these are, let's see, I have, uh, I got about a third of the bed planted with a red giant, and then I got about a third of the bed planted with jok gat, which is a Korean mustard, and it is, it's really pretty. It's like purple leaves and purple stems. It's, it's really, really quite lovely. And then the third variety that I have in here is, it's called green in the snow. It's a Chinese mustard. Um, it's got kind of frilly leaves, a little bit sawtooth. Of them all, I think the Jok Gat is the spiciest. It's pretty, it's got quite a bite to it. The Red Giant is kind of a nice mustard. The Jok Gat, oh man, yeah, right at the end, like there's a, there's a wash of like, poo. It's really, it's really quite spicy and uh, quite lovely. And the, the Chinese mustard, the green in the snow, that's quite, whew, it's almost got like a horseradish kick, which makes sense because mustard and horseradish are all in the same family. So anyway, this is what I'm going to be doing is uh, pickling some mustard greens. And the, the nice thing about these too is you can also, they stir fry really well too, you know, or you can saute them. When they're really young, you can use them as part of a salad mix. I mean, you could now too, but you would have to, they would have to be for somebody who was into like really spicy greens because right now they're really spicy. If it's, <laughs> if, if you give this stuff to somebody expecting lettuce, they are not gonna be happy. This stuff packs a wallop. And so easy to grow, I mean, I barely even tried. I literally just threw out a bunch of seeds and I've thinned them a little bit, but now, even now, they're still, they're growing pretty thick right now. They're thicker than I probably should have grown them, particularly if I was trying to maximize leaves, but I'm over the moon with these things. They're, they're awesome. I highly, highly, highly encourage you to uh, devote lots of your garden to mustard and you will be rewarded with many jars of beautiful pickled greens in December. I'm hoping I get enough to, I should get enough to get me that far. And I'm really curious to see what happens when, when, uh, when all these seed pods start maturing. I'm looking forward to making a little mustard out of this. But for today, we're talking mustard greens. I mean, this, this bed is, I, want, I would say eight by, eight by three feet-ish, maybe a little less than three feet. It's just wall-to-wall -wall greens. And like I say, I've already gotten four sizable batches of uh, probably gallon crocs worth of greens out of this. And I've got, I don't know how many I'm gonna get, but a lot. It's really, it's been, it's been the star of my garden. It's been my great discovery this year. If I could only plant one thing from here on out, or if I was in some of the places where I've lived where I only had like a little tiny bit of space to grow something in, I would totally grow these. Well, the, uh, since the, since the whole reason I kind of got into 
or got interested in mustard greens in the first place was getting my feet wet in uh, Chinese cooking and learning about all the different varieties of uh, mustard greens that are very common in Asia. I thought I would make something that is totally new to me and uh, you guys will get to laugh at me if you know anything about proper Chinese cooking and um, maybe I'll learn something and maybe I'll manage to make something that actually tastes good. It's always a little it's always a little scary getting out of your comfort zone, you know. It's been illuminating because uh, the techniques and the flavors and I mean everything from all, from top to bottom, Chinese cooking is just so so different than the western cooking that I'm used to. I feel more or less competent, you know, in understanding how to how to cook, you know, most western at least western european cuisines. And a lot of, not all, um, like I'm pretty out of my depth in Mexican cooking, for instance, but any of the Southern cooking I can pretty much handle. But Chinese cooking in particular is uh, something that, <laughs> you know, when I was, I have in fact done the thing that so many white people do and, you know, sprinkle some soy sauce on something and serve it over rice and call it Asian night. Totally done that, which is not great. As a starting point, you got to start somewhere, but... You also have to move past that. <laughs> so we are we are moving past that. I've gotten moderately competent in the last couple of years at uh, stir frying. And I'm sort of familiar with the whole business of velveting and passing through oil and some of the some of the basic techniques of uh, Chinese cooking. One of the hardest things really for me to get my head around is just how the sheer variety of like fermented stuff that they use. You know, you go into an Asian grocery store and you're just like confronted with bottles after bottles and jars and packets of all kinds of stuff. And a lot of it is fermented and it's used for very specific flavors and very specific textures. And I don't really know a lot of that. There's a pretty steep learning curve. The basic techniques are fairly simple, but then the, the number of, of different flavors that you're working with and, and the, their unfamiliarity is kind of a major hurdle. Today, we're going to take some steps to familiarize myself with something I have not used before, which is Sichuan preserved mustard greens. Now, there are two kinds of Sichuan preserved mustard greens. There is Yasai, I think, you guys I'm kind of pronouncing it based on watching YouTube videos, so feel free to make fun of me. There's Yasai, and then there's another one which I think is called Zasai. And Yasai is like just a regular, basically a regular mustard green. And the other one, the Zasai, is a special kind of mustard green that they grow for the bulbous knobby stem. That being said, these are the two main varieties of Sichuan preserved mustard green and they don't they aren't just lacto fermented like I've done with my pickles these are there's a complicated process and I don't know all of what it entails except that it does involve they're dried I believe they're steamed and then I think they're dried again after they're steamed and then after that they ferment them I'm about to find out what it's like it feels they're packed in like a vac sealed foil pack Sichuan famous brand Suimi Yasai I have no idea what that means, what the suimi part is. So I'm going to open this up. Ooh, ooh. So it's like kind of minced. Mmm. Oh, oh wow. It's Yeah, it's extremely salty. It's very, very definitely like a mustard green. Mmm, it's good. <laughs> it's actually really, really good. It's, oh, that's tasty. They're all like minced up, so they're, they're, they come in very small, small bits. Not overly. <laughs> it does kind of smell like my grandmother's house when she was cooking. 
mustard greens. Um, they are definitely, they're definitely, there's no mistaking them as mustard greens. Um, they're quite delicious, actually. A little bit of a crunch, a real, a lot of top notes. I think, I think this uh, package, this particular version, yeah, contains a little bit of sugar, a little brown sugar, salt, compound spice, whatever that is. Yeah, you can taste there's a little bit of sweetness there. So I'm going to, just for fun, I'm gonna taste one of my previous batches of fermented greens. Yeah, mine, mine is a, which is lacto-fermented with just salt. It's a lot, it's, it's real bright. It doesn't have near as many of like these sort of funky bottom notes. Yeah. Yeah, those are quite delicious. They, <laughs> they do, that's funny, you know? They, they taste, they taste a little like my grandmother's kitchen. No matter how different, different cuisines are, people do sort of gravitate towards similar flavors. This is, yeah, these things are hot. They're, they're delicious, actually. I have harvested a pretty considerable amount of this bolted mustard from my garden. It's pretty spindly. Wouldn't be much use for mustard greens at this point. You know, if you're making like a mess of greens or something, this is not really the size you want. It's It's been so hot. Some of this stuff actually just, I just planted um, not too long ago and it's already, it, it basically came out of the ground and bolted back when we were getting that heat wave where it was over 80 for a while, which was insane. So in a regular summer, I might have gotten a little more harvesting of the full-size leaves, but that's okay because part of what I'm really enjoying about this mustard greens is that you can use a lot of the plant, you know? It's not like, it's not like a lot of garden vegetables where if you miss the lettuce and it bolts, you're, well, tough luck. With this, it's not a loss. In fact, it's kind of a gain. Like I said, I left quite a bit of it out in the, in the bed. I'm gonna let it go ahead and go to complete seed and see what happens. I'll harvest some of that seed and uh, make some mustard out of it. But what I'm doing here is I am stripping the leaves. Some of these did grow pretty well before the hot spell, so they didn't bolt too fast. So they do have some decent sized leaves. A lot of the rest of them only have, you know, some fairly small ones, maybe five or six small leaves, and then they immediately go up into seed pods and flowers. I'm not gonna try to pickle these stems because they are, I tasted them and they're pretty stringy and pretty woody. But everything else, the flowers, the seed pods, and the smaller leaves have a real nice mustard flavor and I'm going to try to pickle all of them. I'm not worried about every teeny little seed pod, but basically stripping the majority of the seed pods and uh, throwing them in. And a fair amount of the flowers too. Those will, if nothing else, some nice pickled mustard flowers will look very nice on a plate. And probably taste good too. This is the other thing I really like about, about these. One of the hard things about gardening is getting timing right on things, you know? And I feel like even though I really missed sort of the prime period with these, in part because it got so hot that they just went nuts and bolted. Even though I missed the prime period of these, I'm still getting something out of them, you know? It's not like a lost crop. So I'm gonna have some space left over. I'm gonna see if I can find more. I'm gonna see if I can find some seeds because I would love to get another crop before winter. Unfortunately, it's 
It's just, it's right at the end of July right now. It's always a tough time, I find, in Alaska. You know, every year that I've lived here, this is always the, the time where I feel like I start panicking a little, you know? Like, did I do enough to, to get ready for winter? You know, when I was fishing, it was, oh, did I make enough money? In the garden, it's, oh, did I plant enough stuff? Where you never really feel like, you never feel caught up. If you haven't got something started by now, you pretty much know it's not going to happen this year, you know, no matter what it is, unless it's some real small projects. July, is a, July and August are hard times to, you're not going to relax here, you know. Some of these tips with a lot of pods on them, I'm going to save the whole tip. This, is, this has been kind of, a, kind of a fun episode because it's really... It's totally experimental. Neither you nor I are gonna find out what exactly happens with all these, all this pickled stuff until, until sometime next season, you know, the fall season. I'll, I'll use this stuff for something. You know, like I say, I've already got, I've already got quite a bit of, uh, of greens pickled and already put away. So we will talk about those as well in conjunction with the the imported Chinese version. But this is really, you know, I might come back to you in the fall 2019 season on whatever episode I pull these out on and say, you know what, these all turned out disgusting. Whatever I did in that, that mustard green episode, don't do that. So that's very possible. You can't know about everything and you gotta be open to failing sometimes. So this whole ep episode really is an ode to learning new stuff and possibly falling flat on your face because I don't know how any of this is going to turn out but we're going to have fun doing it and we're going to learn something from it some of these seed pods are really nice too and they're they've got a nice sort of <laughs> almost like a vegetal like almost like a green bean flavor right at the beginning and then they sort of merge into into mus a mustard kick they're really nice though if nothing else I'm kind of excited to have discovered those they should pickle really nicely too I think I'm also going to since, well, I'm sort of debating here. I haven't ever really, when I've done lacto-fermentation, pickling type stuff, I've never really added a lot of different flavorings to it, except for some juniper and stuff like that and, and sauerkraut. So I'm kind of debating whether or not I want to add some chilies to this. Chili pepper, I'm gonna see what I wind up with yield-wise. Unfortunately, my yield I don't think is gonna be super awesome because these are so spindly. Because they just, I mean, this is, it's kind of fun. It's sort of, the rhythm of snapping these pods off kind of reminds me of sitting on my, my grandmother's porch when I was a kid. She always grew purple hull peas, which, by the way, would be delicious with uh, mustard greens. They look like black-eyed peas, but they got kind of a purple eye instead of a black eye. And the hull, the, the pod of the pea is purple. Hence the name Purple Hole Peas. They're not real common outside of the South. In fact, I'm not even sure I've ever seen them anywhere else. They're really good though. Purple Hole Peas are awesome. They're better than Black Eyed Peas, I think. But snapping these mustard pots, it feels like sitting on the front porch, busting open Purple Hole Peas pot, pea pods and dropping them into a pail. Little blink, blink, blink. I don't think they'll grow here though. 
Got to be a little hot. Although I am trying fava beans this year. I am growing fava beans, so. If those come out before this season is ended, maybe we'll try to sneak some in one of the recipes. I hope they come out though, because I love, I love fresh beans, fresh peas. They're doing really well though, so far. Definitely got some pods happening, so hopefully, hopefully before the first frost, we get some fresh fava beans. If we get them during a season, maybe I'll see if Patrick from the grog shop can pair them with a nice Chianti. Maybe I'll try to time the liver episode next year for that. I will say this is much, it's much slower harvesting these bolted mustards than it was uh, the ones that were leafier. So from a strict efficiency standpoint, get them while they're young. This is kind of killing one of the advantages <laughs> that I found in, in mustard green pickling as opposed to the old standby of sauerkraut. Not only do I prefer the end product, but it's also way easier, or at least the first few batches were, because I was just using the leaves. And uh, you pretty much just yank the leaves out, wash them off, throw them in salt, and you're good. These are taking a little longer, but that's okay. It'll be an interesting product anyway, because, you know, sauerkraut, you gotta pull the heads, and you gotta shred them all, and that takes forever. Fair amount of preparation involved. These mustard greens, at least the first few batches, were much easier. I'm pretty lazy, so anything that makes things easier, especially when the result is better, or if not better, more to my taste, that's great. Yeah, these seed pods are really, really awesome. I'm, I'm pretty excited about them. They really are like mustardy green beans. They're tiny though, like they would take take a huge amount of these to, to make an actual serving. Probably more, more suited for the condiment world than they are the, the vegetable world. All right, so these are, and the reason that I have them, they are a featured ingredient in a classic Sichuanese dish called Dan Dan noodles. And those are a street dish. They're named after the particular pole, this is all, you know, don't worry you guys, I'm not, I don't know any of this stuff other than by reading them in mostly Fuchsia Dunlop books. They're named after the pole that, so the, their street vendor would carry his, his noodles on in two sort of pots hanging off of one of those poles that balances on the back of your neck. And you'd have a pot of noodles and a pot of sauce and he'd give you the, the noodles. And so they called them Dan Dan noodles because that particular pole is called that's what, that's the name of it. It's a Dan Dan. Or maybe it's just a Dan. My Chinese is non-existent. Fuchsia Dunlop says that the pole is called a Dan, and they call it Dan Dan because he would have two. There you go. One of the joys of cooking, it gives you a really good excuse to constantly learn new things. So what it is, it's a sauce that's served over noodles, and then it's topped with, with minced pork and these preserved mustard greens, the yasai. So I'm going to mince a little pork right now, and I am not, this is just some pork shoulder that I have. I'm not using uh, the grinder, because it's not very much. Do the old two chop method. You just have a very small amount of meat. 
then the easiest way to mince it is with two knives. Over and over and over again. This is how they did it before meat grinders. And all it is is hold two knives like drumsticks basically and whackity whackity whack. And then every now and then you sort of flip it and turn it around and get after it again. And sooner or later you get a nice paste. Well, you get more or less distinct little chunks. Um, slightly more irregular than if you run it through a meat grinder. The next thing that Fuchsia wants me to do, so she's basically going to have me stir fry the vegetable, stir fry the pork, add a few of the sauce ingredients, and then the sauce itself will be done. But first, I have Sichuan peppercorns to toast and grind. So I'm just gonna toast a little handful of Sichuan peppercorns, probably like a half a teaspoon, something like that. You may remember from the chili episode in which I committed an egregious error for which any Chinese people listening will probably laugh at me for. Sichuan peppercorns are a key ingredient in the characteristic Sichuan flavor of mala. And mala translates as hot and numbing. And what I said before was that ma means hot and la means numbing where in fact, it is the other way around. So I was totally wrong in keeping with my non-existent Chinese. Although in my defense, I will say, they always translate ma la as hot and numbing, so it seems to be sort of obvious that ma would be hot and la would be numbing, but it is not the fact, it is not in fact the, the case. In fact, la means hot and ma means numbing. So Sichuan peppercorns provide Ma and chilies provide the law. So this, in fact, the the uh, a key component of this dish is Sichuan chili oil, which I made during the chili show. So it's been sitting in my refrigerator, nicely becoming delicious, and I've been eating eating it and enjoying it on many many things. I do have some left, and that is going to go into this dish. So there are two components to this dish. There's the the sauce, and then there's the noodles. Or some people, I've seen some recipes consider it three, three components, the sauce, the pork topping, and the noodles. I don't particularly care uh, if you want to think of it as three things or two things. So I've just turned my wok on. I happen to have, my stove has a high heat burner. The thing with wok cooking is you really want, you want it to be as hot as possible. My favorite way to do it, which I'm not doing today, uh, I have a turkey fryer outdoor propane burner that just cranks out BTUs. That is an ideal wok burner. You know, it's got a nice ring that the wok can sit right in. Um, but today I'm doing this on my stove and I have found that in general, the stove works okay for, for my purposes. You do have to be a little bit careful. It takes a little while to, uh, to get it, to get the wok back up to, to speed, you know, or up to its heat between batches and you, you can't overload it. Like you can't really put very much in it at a time or else the heat drops too much. But I have a wok ring, I take off my grate, I put the wok right on the flame. The flame kind of shoots up the side a little bit like it's supposed to. 
So while my wok is heating up, I'm gonna double check. I'm going to look at my recipe from Fuchsia Dunlop. For those of you who aren't aware, she's, uh, she's an English woman who was the first Westerner to train at the main Sichuan Culinary Academy. And now she's sort of the, the preeminent translator of Chinese cooking techniques into, into English. She's the Julia Child of Chinese cooking. So she is going to have me stir fry. So I'm gonna heat some oil. I'm going to stir fry the yasai and briefly, and then I'm going to add the ground pork and stir fry that briefly. Then I'm going to add a splash of Shaozing wine. And Shaozing wine is a Chinese cooking wine. It's, if you don't have it, you can sub sherry. Yeah, it definitely, it has a, it has a sherry-like aroma. Sherry is probably the closest of the Western, the Western wines. Don't use like sake or anything like that. It's a completely different flavor. So, I'm going to stir fry the yasai, stir fry the ground pork. Then I'm going to add a splash of Shaozing wine and a little bit of soy sauce and cook that. Set it aside and then I will mix the rest of the sauce ingredients separately from the pork. One of the things that you definitely learn real fast in, in learning to cook any kind of Chinese uh, dishes is everything needs to be ready to go at your fingertips because once you once it hits the wok things happen real fast and uh, you need to hustle. So I've got a bowl that's ready to accept. Ready to accept my pork. My wok is screaming hot. So this is, uh, always remember, get the wok crazy hot, then you add the oil. You don't heat the oil while the, while the wok is heating because then, you're just, then you just burn the oil. So you get the wok really hot. It's, it's really, it's the same practice as good sauteing um, technique. You get the pan hot and then you add your oil. Cold oil, hot pan. And then uh, once it gets going, you gotta move quick, so. Here we go. Oil. That's the yasai. Stir frying that just briefly. So it starts to sort of cook some of the water out, turn color a little bit. And now, Gonna add my pork. And you definitely keep stirring, keep the food moving. If it looks like something's gonna burn, that's what that's what the, the walls of the wok are for. You can push things up. So it's high heat on the bottom and lower heat up top is basically kind of the guiding principle of wok cooking. It's why the wok is shaped the way it is, and it's why. It's why it can be difficult to get really good results in a flat bottom wok because it's harder to sort of control the temperature. And I'm just gonna cook this until the pork is just done. And this is really the only, the only real cooking part of this recipe. The rest of it, the, so the rest of the sauce making happens off the heat and then other than boiling the actual noodles, um, obviously. Add the Shaozing. Just a little bit. And a little soy sauce. 
And just a pinch of salt. Mm. Oh, that smells really good. <laughs> Again, it's, you know, pork and mustard greens. It's like, man, this isn't really that far out of my wheelhouse. Pork and mustard greens is something I am familiar with. That's the pork topping. So the next thing to do is whack together the sauce. Mmm, that's good. Yeah, the pork and the the pork and that yasai just totally blend together and form a new a new and different flavor, and it's quite delicious. And uh, suddenly, I'm very excited to finish this. So fuchsia, what am I doing next? Chili oil. A little more soy sauce, a bit of sugar. She actually calls for dark soy sauce, which I do not have. It can be surprisingly difficult to find here for some reason. So there's light soy sauce. So some chili oil with copious flakes for some nice heat. Some recipes for this call for, uh, before you stir fry, they call for cooking some dried chili peppers in the oil to flavor the oil and give it some heat. Fuchsia Dunlops did not. So I'm going to go with hers because I've never made this before and I'm about to make a substitution. They generally say prefer dark brown sugar or ideally an unrefined sugar in these sauces if you don't have dark soy sauce, which I don't. I'm gonna do something a little different though because I happen to have some Steen's cane syrup from Louisiana, which is unrefined sugarcane goodness that is boiled in open kettles. And I'm gonna use a little bit of that instead of brown sugar. I feel like this would be approved. So this is gonna be a little bit of a little fusion here. I'm not putting very much in. It doesn't call for much uh, of sugar or much uh, much of the dark soy sauce anyway, so I'm not gonna put a whole lot in. Maybe that was maybe a teaspoon or two. It's just supposed to give it just a little bit of sweetness. And that's one of the big differences I find between, um, you know, there, if, if you can make broad-based generalizations about the difference between Asian cooking versus European cooking is that Asian cooking tends to incorporate sugar more and well not 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 necessarily sugar but an element of sweetness more in within individual dishes as opposed to what we in the West typically do which is separate it out and present the the sugar or the sweetness as its own course it tends to be a little more integrated into the overall cuisine in Asian cooking I've noticed. It's hard to make sweeping generalizations like that, but it is something that I've sort of, I feel is more or less accurate. So I've got my soy sauce, I've got my chili oil, I've got my, got a little bit of cane syrup. I need to add my toasted Szechuan peppercorns for the ma, the numbing. And let's go see what else fuchsia has to say. Give it a little more. I think you can take a little more chili oil. And then another interesting ingredient, which is chengkiang vinegar. I may be pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> With all of this, I may be pronouncing all of this wrong. I'm sorry, China. A splash of chengkiang vinegar, which is uh, it's a black vinegar. It's made, it's a rice vinegar. Let's see, what are the ingredients in here? Water, glutinous rice, wheat bran, sugar, salt. So it's, it's like a sweetened rice vinegar um, and it's dark. It has, it has a considerably more complex flavor than regular rice vinegar. So I would not suggest, it, it reminds me a little bit actually of, uh, of malt vinegar. I think it has kind of that same 
sort of flavor note. Ooh, 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 that's good. Woo! <coughs> There's a lot of chili oil in there. Oh man, that's delicious. And that was really, honestly, an absurdly easy sauce to make. I have seen, you know, there's a lot of different, this is street food really, so there's a ton of different recipes for it, a lot of different variations. One thing I do notice about this is that there is no uh, thickener in it. And a lot of recipes will include a thickener, like cornstarch or, or potato starch or something like tapioca sometimes. There's no thickener in this one, so it's, it's pretty thin. It's a lot thinner than what we're used to, you know, in most American Chinese places. And that's one thing, I can't really confirm this because I've never been to China, but I've always heard that even the sauces there that they, that they do use starches for, which they do quite a bit, even those tend to be thinner than what we're used to. So this is a very thin sauce. And some, some recipes for Dan Dan noodles do have uh, added starches to them. So it just depends on which recipe you're looking at. That is extremely delicious though. I'm very excited about it. And uh, I can't wait to cook my, my egg noodles. So yeah, this is gonna go over egg noodles, fresh egg noodles ideally. Yummy. The, uh, the yasai, the, the preserved mustard greens, they're pretty easy to find. You can just Google them. These in particular are from the Sichuan famous brand produced by Sichuan Yibin Suimi Yasai Company. If you are looking for commentary on the different grades of it, I'm not your guy. But there is a wealth of information out there, um, and these are awesome. And honestly, it would, it would be a different flavor. It would be considerably less funky if I used my preserved mustard greens, but it would be a different kind of delicious. I might, I might even throw some of those on top of here when I dish up my noodles because they would be delicious too. Anyway, Dan Dan noodles, my first time making them and they're yummy. It's definitely not gonna be my last. What I'm gonna do with these is really pretty straightforward. It doesn't even require that much explanation. 3.5% brine. I'm gonna weigh out the, the total leaves. I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna measure out 3% of that total weight, three, three and a half percent of that total weight. And uh, I, usually, I usually go three, and then I wind up putting in just a pinch more. So 3% is like my baseline. But in reality, the it's weight gonna be close to greens. Three and, a half. and then I'll make up a three, three and a half percent brine as well. Get my crock out. Wash it out with a little soap and water. Rinse it good. A little salt on the bottom. And then just start layering salt and my greens and pods and flowers. And once I've got those in pretty tight, I like to keep them fairly tight. You want to avoid too much floating. But they need to be so <laughs> they need to be sort of loose enough that the water, the brine can penetrate all the nooks and crannies but they also need to be tight enough that uh, they're not just floating separately from each other. You get the hang of it after you do it a couple times. So layer them in there with the salt, and then at the end, cover them with your 3% brine. And the only real trick with lacto-fermentation is that you've got to keep everything submerged. If any bits of vegetable matter get up above the surface of the brine, they are highly likely to mold. 
I generally just skim the, if anything does mold, I generally just yank it out and toss it. But I'm not certainly not going to recommend one way or the other what you do. Some people, if they get any mold, throw out the whole batch. Some people do what I do, which is skim off the top and add some fresh brine, resubmerge everything, cross their fingers. Those are your options. I leave it up to you. And if you are fortunate enough to have a really nice crock, it might it probably comes with a weight that you can use that's exactly fitted to it. But if you have an older one, you know, that you got second hand or whatever, it's likely that you don't have a weight, in which case you can do what I wind up doing almost all the time. Just take a Ziploc bag and fill it with brine and use that as a weight. And the reason you want to make sure you fill it with brine and not just regular water is because then if it leaks, which they do sometimes, if it leaks, it leaks brine and not water that will dilute your brine and possibly introduce some nasty things. Oh, and as far as mold goes, the only time you want to even mess around with keeping stuff is if it's white mold. If it's colored mold, bad. So if it's white mold, you can just take the stuff off the top. Generally, the, the other thing that I'll do is, uh, is run, wipe some vinegar around all the exposed surfaces. That'll suppress any mold spores that are, that are there. But that's what I do. If you want to play it safe, you can certainly throw out the batch. I would say that if you are the kind of person who thinks you are more likely to play it safe than to simply throw out the moldy stuff and keep going, I would say probably smaller batches would be better for you. That way, if you do get a mold infestation in one batch, you don't lose your entire pickle. Food safety is one of those things that there are some standards. There are things that you would never do in a commercial kitchen that you can, many people do at home frequently. There are certain things that are obvious, do not do this. There are certain things that it's sort of up to you. There are things that you can do that are fine in a home kitchen that would get you shut down immediately if you were attempting to sell that product, and for good reason. I know, I know that my immune system is not compromised, but in a restaurant situation, you don't know that all your customers' immune systems are not compromised, so you play it safe, which is the point of food regulation. So in a commercial situation, a little bit of mold may or may not be, you know, it would depend on how the regulations are written. Uh, there are, depending on when you catch it and what you do to, to fix it, sometimes things like that aren't an issue. But that is entirely up to the health department in your state. But for home, they don't really care. You can attempt to pickle your food with bleach and uh, don't pickle your food with bleach. That's very bad. But you can try to do that. And uh, after you die, the health department will have nothing to say about it because... You're an idiot, but you're allowed to be an idiot in your own home. You are perfectly free in your own home to cut a salad on a board that you just cut chicken on. You are free in your own home to ignore the food safety pronouncements of that idiot on the radio with all his talk about bacteria. Because grandpa didn't know about bacteria and he lived to be 175. Obviously, that means that bacteria are a myth, right? That's just science. But if you're a stick-in-the-mud loser, be careful with the mold. So then I'm going to 
I'm gonna put my crock in a dark place, in a cool place. Find a cool spot in the house. Ideally 60, 65. Ideally not warmer than 70. That's another thing that helps keep funky bacteria and funky mold away, is uh, keeping the temperature proper. The lactobacilli like to live in 60 to 70 degrees, and they prefer 60 to 65. And you basically just check it every couple days, make sure there's no mold. As long as it's happily bubbling away and sitting there, then it's okay. After, I'll usually start tasting it about a week, but I find that I like a minimum of two weeks, and really I like more. It just depends on how funky you want it. Some people have different tastes, so it just depends on, you know, the funk that you want. Some people like Prince, some people like Michael Bolton. But generally, I would say three weeks to a month is gonna be about as long as you really wanna let it go outside of either refrigeration or further processing. And after that, then you can put them into a refrigerator, into a cold storage, you know, under 41 degrees, basically. If you can keep them under that temperature, then you'll drastically le lessen the chance of uh, any gross mold or nasty things forming. You can, you can heat treat it. You'll lose some of the texture. You know, I, I would like to say about the texture of this, somebody asked me, you know, when I was telling them that I had just discovered this, they were like, well, don't, don't the leaves get mushy because they're, you know, they're softer, they're a little more tender than like a cabbage leaf. At least the first couple of batches, no, they do not get mushy at all. They actually do retain a little bite to the, to the leaf. There is definitely texture. They don't just get soggy. They don't get, they don't get the way that mustard greens get when you boil them in the Southern way, which also is a texture that I happen to enjoy. They do not have that texture. They do still have a bit of a crunch to them. And the stems, particularly if you're, if you're, you're able to to get the stems fairly thick. The stems have a really nice, uh, satisfying, loud texture. So if you wanna keep that, that crunchy texture, you're, you are gonna wanna uh, just keep them unpasteurized in the fridge. But if you want more shelf stable, then you're gonna want to water bath can them. And if you're gonna do that, I would say it's a good idea to test the pH and make sure that the pH is the correct level. And I am not going to give you food safety advice on the correct pH. I'm going to direct you to your local cooperative extension service who will tell you what pH is safe for water bath and not pressure. And after that, yeah, just enjoy it, man. I eat these things straight out of the jar and they're just delicious. This is the experiment with the pods and the flowers, and we're going to see what happens. And I will get back to you on this one in the fall. You'll either hear, man, those things were disgusting. Or what I hope is that uh, I'll make some sort of a recipe with, with these guys. But I'm going to go do what I just told you that, to do and get these guys pickling. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI Studios in Homer, Alaska. It's produced by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. 
This is the fourth episode of the summer 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you. 